Hello everybody and thanks for tuning to Revolutionary Lumpen Radio. In this episode we're going to go over an essay published by Albert Einstein. This essay was originally published in the first issue of Monthly Review, May 1942. So in this essay, Albert Einstein expresses important concerns about capitalism and socialism. Who is Albert Einstein? Well, Albert Einstein is a German-born theoretical physicist who developed the theory of relativity as one of the two pillars of modern physics, alongside quantum mechanics. His work is also known for its influence on the philosophy of science. Einstein is best known to the general public for his mass-energy equivalence formula, E equals mc squared, as being dubbed the world's most famous equation. He received the 1921 Nobel Prize in Physics, for his services to theoretical physics, and especially for his discovery of the law of the photoelectric effect, a pivotal step in the development of quantum theory. As a species, we owe Albert Einstein so much for developing technologically. Um, we owe GPS to him because of his theory of space-time. You know, we've talked in the past about anything that is revolutionary being stripped of revolutionary potential and sold back to the masses. I think I could stretch that out a little bit and say that Albert Einstein has been stripped of his revolutionary potential because we do get to learn about him. Everybody's heard of Albert Einstein, but what we might not have heard is that is he a socialist, Ryan? Or he at least knew that capitalism was going to cause extinction of our species. He knew that capitalism was extremely primitive and barbaric. Yeah, I mean, I don't know whether he called himself that or not, but, I mean, as we're going to see in this text, he certainly didn't, you know, sympathise with the capitalist cause. Yeah, most definitely. So it has been said by Einstein that the real purpose of socialism is to overcome and advance beyond the predatory phase of human development. What is he talking about? The predatory phase of human development. He's talking about capitalism. When Einstein was asked what he thought of Lenin, he said, I honour Lenin as a man who completely sacrificed himself and devoted all his energy to the realisation of social justice. <laughs> so he's also a Marxist-Leninist, I'm going to say. So without further ado, I mean, we'll dive into the text now, we'll read out his words that he written, and then we'll jump in and discuss at any time we like. Einstein begins, Is it advisable for one who is not an expert on economic and social issues to express views on the subject of socialism. I believe for a number of reasons that it is. Let us first consider the question from the point of view of scientific knowledge. It might appear that there are no essential methodological differences between astronomy and economics. Scientists in both fields attempt to discover laws of general acceptability for a circumscribed group of phenomena in order to make the interconnection of these phenomena as clearly understandable as possible. But in reality, such methodological differences do exist. The discovery of general laws in the field of economics is made difficult by the circumstance that observed economic phenomena are often affected by many factors which are very hard to evaluate separately. In addition, the experience which has accumulated since the beginning of the so-called civilized period of human history has, as is well known, been largely influenced and limited by causes which are by no means exclusively economic in nature. For example, most of the major states of history owed their existence to conquest. The conquering peoples established themselves, legally and economically, as the privileged class of the conquered country. They seized for themselves a monopoly of land ownership 
and appointed a priesthood from among their own ranks. The priests, in control of education, made the class division of society into a permanent institution and created a system of values by which the people were thenceforth, to a large extent, unconsciously guided in their social behavior. What a start. Yeah, so instantly, like right off the bat, he understands not only the monopoly of land ownership from a capitalist point of view, he understands that society is divided into classes. He also understands, you know, almost in a Gramscian way, right, the idea that priests are servants of bourgeois or petty bourgeois, and they are essentially weapons deployed by the bourgeois to pacify the masses in order to accept, you know, a bourgeois moral system like, like religious moral systems, right? Absolutely, he does. He, he really proves himself to be an organic intellectual in this case because he's talking about the politics of capitalism, he's talking about class antagonism, he talks about the history of human society. But historic tradition is, so to speak, of yesterday. Nowhere have you really overcome what Thorstein Veblen called the predatory phase of human development. The observable economic facts belonging to that phase and even such laws as we can derive from them are not applicable to other phases. Since the real purpose of socialism is precisely to overcome and advance beyond the predatory phase of human development, economic science in its present can throw little light on the socialist society of the future. Second, socialism is directed towards a social ethical end. Science, however, cannot create ends and even less instill them in human beings. Science, at most, can supply the means of which to attain certain ends, but the ends themselves are conceived by personalities with lofty ethical ideas, and if these ends are not stillborn, but vital and vigorous, are adapted and carried forwards by those human beings who half-unconsciously determine the slow evolution of society. So instantly again, what he talks about overcoming this predatory phase of human development and the purpose of socialism in order to do that, I'm reminded by Rosa Luxemburg's quote, capitalism or extinction, it's socialism or barbarism. I mean, we're not moving towards barbarism. It's not like we're going to head towards like a nuclear holocaust and then there's going to be nothing left and we're all going to be walking around with sticks and stones. I think that like what they're saying here is we're already living in barbarism. Like, capitalism is the most barbaric, most brutal, most savage, most primitive system we, we have in the world. And, of course, a, a scientist knows for a fact that science, specifically, I think he's referring to the liberal enlightenment concept of science, is never actually going to advance history forward and away from this capitalist barbarism. I'm probably stretching that a little bit, but that's where I get out of that. Well, I mean, I think ultimately he's saying is like, you can't just simply rely on science to fix all the problems because ultimately anything that science comes up with or any discoveries of science have to be utilized by human beings. And if you live inside a capitalist society, any advancements in science are going to be utilized for the ends of, you know, the capitalists, right? Because even though scientific theories are great and they describe the world around you, it's about application that changes the world. And if the only people, and if the society that these people live in are capitalist societies, then these theories are going to be utilized by capitalists to serve the ends of capitalists, right? Absolutely, Ryan, yes. This is why technology is not immune from a class analysis, right? 
every institution in society has a class component and technology is definitely one of those also. If you think of Silicon Valley, you know who they serve, you know what that's about. You know that the internet and technology in general right now is used to either surveil people on a mass scale or, you know, advertise and, and sell you stuff. Exactly. Radio, I'll hop in the next two. Mm -hmm. Innumerable voices have been asserting for some time now that human society is passing through a crisis, that its stability has been gravely shattered. It is characteristic of such a situation that individuals feel indifferent or even towards the or even hostile towards the group, large or small, to which they belong. In order to illustrate my meaning, let me record here a personal experience. I recently discussed with an intelligent and well-disposed man the threat of another war, which in my opinion would seriously endanger the existence of mankind, and I remarked that only a supranational organization would offer protection from that danger. Thereupon my visitor, very calmly and coolly, said to me, why are you so deeply opposed to the disappearance of the human race? I am sure that as little as a century ago, no one would have so lightly made a statement of this kind. It is the statement of a man who has striven in vain to attain an equilibrium within himself and has more or less lost hope of succeeding. It is the expression of a painful solitude and isolation from which so many people are suffering in these days. What is the cause and is there a way out? Sounds a bit misanthropic, do you think? I mean, that statement is sure, but he's, you know, trying to draw a parallel between how people wouldn't have made that in previous times, but now... They do, so what's the difference there? Like, why are we seeing these statements now? You know, fucking fuck the rest of the human race. You know, once I'm dead, I'm dead. This is what he means when he talks about it's characteristic of a situation that individuals, he's talking about liberals, I think, within a certain class, but this hostility towards a group small or large is actually hostility towards our entire species. It's normal to a lot of people to actually be in favour of the extinction of our species for capital gains. It just goes to show the more things change, the more they stay the same. Right, like the sentiment of, you know, why are you so deeply opposed to the disappearance of the human race is like, essentially this, it's like at the core of like, doomerism and sort of like internet mimetic culture, essentially. You know, like these, these themes run throughout society and, you know, history rains down upon us. Yeah. These sentiments ultimately have been with us, you know, hundreds of years now, and they're, they're still alive today. They're, they're just expressed differently because of the technological capacities of the time. No longer do you have people, you know, talking to Einstein around candlelit tables talking about and, I mean, it wouldn't have been tandem. I think they had electricity then, but whatever, right? The point is that, you know, today we have technology like the internet, thus such expressions are distributed through, you know, memes and stuff, and then you get doomerism, you get that kind of mimetic um, expression of the same sentiment. Yeah, correct. And if you're to hold such a misanthropic view as an individual, well, what that does for a society and collective as large is it enables the capacity to genocide, to murder, because if you have no quarrel with the extinction of the human race, then you have no quarrel with the extinction of an individual's life or an ethnic minority, anything like that. So I'll go into it because Einstein attempts to answer this question as to why he's so deeply opposed to the disappearance of the human race. He says, it is easy to raise such questions, but difficult to answer them with any degree of assurance. I must try, however, as best as I can, 
although I am very conscious of the fact that our feelings and strivings are often contradictory and obscure and that they cannot be expressed in easy and simple formulas. Man is, at one and the same time, a solitary being and a social being. As a solitary being, he attempts to protect his own existence and that of those who are closest to him, to satisfy his personal desires and to develop his innate abilities. As a social being, he seeks to gain the recognition and affection of his fellow human beings, to share in their pleasures, to comfort them in sorrows, and to improve their conditions of life. Only the existence of these very frequently conflicting, striving accounts for the special character of a man and their specific combination determines the extent to which an individual can achieve an inner equilibrium and can contribute to the well-being of society. It is quite possible that the relative strength of these two drives is, in the main, fixed by inheritance. But the personality that finally emerges is largely formed by the environment in which a man happens to find himself during his development, by the structure of society in which he grows up, by the tradition of that society and by its appraisal of particular types of behaviour. The abstract concept, society, means to the individual human being the sum total of his direct and indirect relations to his contemporaries and to all other people in earlier generations. The individual is able to think, feel, strive and work by himself, but he depends so much upon society in his physical, intellectual and emotional existence that it is impossible to think of him or to understand him outside the framework of society. It is society which provides man with food, clothing, a home, fuels for work, language, the forms of thought and most of the contents of thought. His life is made possible through the labour and accomplishments of the many millions past and present who are all hidden beyond the small world of society. So that was an interesting couple of paragraphs there talking about an individual and society being dependent on each other. Did you get any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, clearly when he talks about, you know, uh, most of the content of thought... You know, he clearly understands the base and superstructure here, right? That's he clearly it. understands that most of the things that people think are thoughts that are given to them, right? Like, this is why Marx described Marxism as being the ruthless criticism of everything that exists. Because as a result of being born into a capitalist society, most of your thoughts and opinions on things are going to be the capitalist view of society, right? This is why it's the the hardest work of a Marxist to ruthlessly criticize each of the your thoughts and opinions on uh, all of the topics of, you know, modern day discussion, because ultimately, most likely, uh, if you haven't done considerable work at the core, they're going to be, you know, capitalist um, opinions, because that's the society that you live in. You know, you can essentially just think of your brain like a sponge and, you know, the media and everything are basically just taps right and as you grow up in society and you start to learn and read and write and things your brain it's just a sponge that just absorbs all that water from capitalist institutions and as a result of that you end up with the capitalist uh, opinion on you know almost everything <laughs> your brain's a sponge <laughs> and culture and um societal norms 
attached. That's funny, Ryan. That's going to be in the intro music for the next series. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's absolutely right. It's an easy way of explaining how our language, our culture, what we like, what we don't like. This is all from societies, from the base, the superstructure. Einstein's talking about Marxist concepts. <laughs> they're not even Marxist concepts. They're just concepts that Marx described in a particular way. And other Marxists have elaborated on, but it seems to me that Einstein, the reason why he's talking about this is because he wants to get it across to people that they are hyper individuals and the individuals, because it benefits capitalism in imperialist nations to be an individual. But at the same time, I think that what he's getting at is whilst you may think and you might even be an individual, there's literally no way that you can deny the society provides man with food, clothing, a home, the tools of work, language, the forms of thought, most of the concept of his thought. His life is made possible through the labour and the accomplishments of millions, past and present, who are hidden behind the small world society. You know, there's, there's builders who build buildings that outlive them, the, the roads that we walk on, all of this. There's so much history that the people have built. And to think that you're separate from society in general is just an absurd detachment from reality that Einstein, I think, feels is crucial to get across to people. So I think that his main point in talking about the individual versus society is also an answer as to why he's so deeply opposed to the disappearance of the human race is because I feel like Einstein knew that that question from this misanthropic liberal isn't a question from this misanthropic liberal. It's from like an ideological perspective, which is his brain soaked up all the flipping liberalism. Yeah. It is evident, therefore, that the dependence of an individual upon society is a fact of nature which cannot be abolished, just as in the case of ants and bees. However, while the whole life process of ants and bees is fixed down to the smallest detail by rigid, hereditary instincts, the social pattern and interrelationships of human beings are very variable and susceptible to change. Memory, the capacity to make new combinations, the gift of oral communication, have made possible developments among human beings which are not dictated by biological necessities. Such developments manifest themselves in traditions, institutions, and organizations, in literature, in scientific and engineering accomplishments, and in works of art. This explains how that happens. In a certain sense, man can influence his life through his own conduct, and that in this process, conscious thinking and wanting can play a part. Man acquires, at birth, through hereditary, a biological constitution which we must consider fixed and unalterable, including the natural urges which are characteristic of the human species. In addition, during his lifetime, he acquires a cultural constitution which he adopts from society through communication and through many other types of influences. It is this cultural constitution which, with the passage of time, is subject to change and which determines to a very large extent the relationship between the individual and society. Modern anthropology has taught us, through comparative investigation of so-called primitive cultures, that the social behaviour of human beings may differ greatly depending upon prevailing cultural patterns and the types of organization which predominate in society. It is on this that those who are striving to improve the lot of man may ground their hopes. 
human beings are not condemned because of their biological constitution to annihilate each other or be at the mercy of a cruel self-inflicted fate. He starts then paragraphs talking about the dependence of the individual upon society as a fact of nature which cannot be abolished. I mean, this really doesn't need explaining. We are all here because two people have had sex and then we've been born. <laughs> you know, it's that simple. If a baby is not picked up and held after being born, they die. Human beings need other human beings. It's that simple. We can't just be born and then just, you know what I'm saying? Just think of how useless we are as babies. It's, it's insane. And, and, you know, it's even insane that, like, women give us this life and then society doesn't even respect the women who gave us this life you know so much and he goes on to touch upon like modern anthropology has taught us through comparative investigation of so-called primitive cultures that the social behavior of human beings may differ greatly so automatically Einstein's coming out and saying so-called primitive cultures so he's automatically dispelling the Western um, imperialist racist thoughts towards, say, indigenous people around the world. But what anthropology has shown us to elaborate on this is the... Hello everybody, welcome to Revolutionary Left Radio. I'm your host and comrade Brett O'Shea, and today we have a super special collaborative episode with Pearls of the Roundtable. Fuck. I really wish that anthropology was a required oh my like, God. education yes. course at the like elementary to high school level, because I think it would shut down mm. a lot of the arguments regarding um, human nature in terms of capitalism, mm. because if there is anything that I have learned in studying particularly hunter-gatherer societies mm. mm-hmm. historically and currently is that there are material examples verifiable cases in which different societies behave in different mm. ways based upon their material circumstances yep. okay so it, it's it's not super complicated but it is a bit difficult to explain so i'll try to kind of do it slowly and then explain afterwards if, if it seems unclear in the case of hunter gatherers when resources are both centrally located, densely packed, and seasonally predictable, hunter-gatherer societies tend to become defensive, combative, and isolated. They tend to develop hierarchies more easily. In situations where resources are sparse, more broadly spread, and unpredictable, societies tend to be more egalitarian, less violent, and more likely to share information with other groups of hunter-gatherers. So the reason behind that is human beings, they have an imperative to survive, and they have a drive to make sure that their family unit survives as well yeah however broadly that family unit is right defined. and, and it, that is that, and that changes that, that can change based on the ideology of a group or right. based on um the again the material circumstances mm-hmm. however what that means is if i can defend this territory and that makes it more likely that i will live and my family will live 
then I will kill people to defend it. Right. Mm-hmm. However, if it's spread out and I need to be able to share information with other groups because I, I might starve to death if I don't know where the food is, then I'm going to be less likely to attack other human beings and to uh, and I'm going to be more likely to share with other people because if I share with you that there's food over here, then next time that I can't find food, you'll tell me where I can I can find food. And so that utterly destroys the idea that there is some sort of human nature to greed or to like violence or to it is materially based mm-hmm. and that's the key and i Great think example yeah and i think that's one of the most pernicious things in specifically i mean i grew up in the u.s with the u.s education system specifically like u.s or western maybe Ideology is this idea of human nature. Literally anybody you talk to yep. is going to say like, oh, well, that's just human nature, like yeah. at the base level. And, and it but I mean, I also study anthropology. And and the thing is that human nature is limited to like if you're going to make a meaningful claim about human nature is limited to a very specific yes. couple of things about needing to eat, sleep, drink. Uh, reproduce, uh, needing warmth. Social interaction. Yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah. But beyond that, we have we have examples of societies throughout history that do just about anything else you sure. can imagine. And there are even exceptions. So there, there was there's a society that lived in uh, what's known as the Chulmun period in Korea, which is um, like I think eight. 1000 BC to 3000 BC. Sorry, just a quick call out to the DPRK. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, My homie Kim Jong un. Uh, Supreme Leader Kim Jong un. (laughs) Boost boost this episode. See you next year. See you next year. So, anyway, so so there are exceptions even to the things that I just described. Um, So, particularly in the Chilmun period in Korea, which was um, and I'm probably going to fuck this up because I can't rem- remember off the top of my head, but it, I, it was, I believe, 8,000 B.C. to 3,000 B.C. Um, there were a group of societies who had resources which were densely packed, readily available, seasonally dependent. However, they shared, and we know that they shared because different societies had different art styles on their pottery and we would find broken pieces of pottery in these shell middens and so they were able to piece together okay well this society occupied this site here and then also this other society occupied this site here these were uh like uh justin and i lived in korea and they have these giant mud flats and they still to this day People will walk out in these waders and like go like shoulder deep into the mud to pull like clams out, right? This is what was going on during the Chulmun period. And in these shell middens, broken pieces of pottery tell us that multiple societies were sharing exactly the same shell middens in exactly the same time. And that is wild. Like, so again, human nature, garbage. So that's really important, right? We're looking at anthropology, we're looking at human history and showing how. I mean, for lack of a better term, scarcity, right? Yeah. The scarcity of resources dictates how people behave, yeah. how cruel they are to other people or how welcoming they are to other people, right? Mm-hmm. So insofar as capitalism, as we all know, creates a system where it, it artificially creates scarcity, right? Yep. It, it creates a context in which there is there, – there doesn't, doesn't need to be a, a, a lack of – um, the basics of life, right? But it's mm-hmm. it's created in this marketplace, so it's prohibitive based on your your poverty level. Sure. But we we talk about um, fascism and capitalism being 
intertwined, right? <laughs> and going yeah. right back to what your anthropological evidence suggests is that insofar as capitalism does create that scarcity, fascism is a reaction to that scarcity. Yep. Mm-hmm. And it and what it does is it says in-group, out-group shit. So yes. if you're white or whatever the fuck, nationalist, yep. American, yeah. um, you know, you're my in-group and we're fighting over scarce resources. They don't mm. need to be scarce. Yeah, and sure. socialism is the process by which we we eliminate that artificial scarcity yep. and, and materially produce yeah. things to yeah. create a level. That's why you don't have fascist movements, as I always say, mm. in Mao's China, in the Soviet Union, in, Cuba. in, in Fidel's Cuba. Yeah. There's mm-hmm. no fascist movements because this, this, this attempt to obliterate uh, the, the artificial scarcity of capitalism yep. is, uh, is, is taking place. Exactly. The comrades get it popping though. He said with confidence, man, my smoke, I have a zip a day dealing with politics. I said, I feel you, bro. I wrote another and we talked about how we could get it structured by the summer. Said, I am down a rally. I, I will call you family because I will take a bullet for my comrade gladly. <laughs> We live under scarcity. And what does capitalism provide? Capitalism provides, intentionally, artificial scarcity. That's how value works. You've probably heard the story of, I don't know, some, some shoe company making thousands or millions of shoes or whatever, and then they, they destroy them all. And why is that they destroy them all? To keep the value of the shoes a certain price, don't they? Because if, if they have too many of a product then the overall value of that product is reduced and capitalists don't want that so they, they create an artificial scarcity so that people are, are willing to pay more yeah that's called the crisis of overproduction mm. yep and it's also to it's also to maintain the current value of the people of the products that exist right so Super high-end brands do this as well, like Louis Vuitton do this. So at the end of every year, they've sold, you know, X amount of handbags, let's say, and then they have, of course, tons of stock left over because there's no way they sell 100% of their stock each year. So what they could do is, you know, give them away or sell them at a reduced price, but they're never going to do that because they are a niche booty shop that trade off of image essentially being a uh, a bourgeois luxury product, right? So instead, they can't just start giving them to homeless people because it loses its um, exclusivity, right? And plus, people will start knowing, don't buy one, just wait till the end of the year and they'll give them away, right? So instead, they have to destroy them in order to, for the people who bought one to maintain that value. See, here's the thing that... I, I, some people don't really seem to understand. It took me ages to understand this, that capital is fundamentally a, a social instrument, right? So when they destroy those excess bags, they're not just destroying a product, they're actually maintaining the social relationships between members of the bourgeois class who have those products. Because if those handbags, like I said, start just being given to homeless people, how the bourgeois people with those handbags see each other starts to change. So they're actually maintaining social relationships within a class structure by doing that. Well said, thank I also you have way much so- to say on this uh, on these paragraphs as well. Let me just say as the capitalist says that these industries, these corporations, these businesses, which you've just referred to, Louis Vuitton, whatever, let's call them individuals as they like to be called. And, and let's go back to what Einstein's talking about, the individual and their role on society in general. If individual corporations have this planned obsolescence or 
What did you call it? Um, planned obsolescence is definitely a thing, but I'm not sure what term I used that you're looking for. Oh, oh, overproduction. It's, yeah, it's the crisis of overproduction. That's what this is. Because capitalism's main goal is to create artificial scarcity. It does that through Louis Vuitton bags, or it does that through everything a human needs in our society. So why it does that? It's to keep the same racism, the same fascism, the same fear among its people. And what does socialism do? Socialism is a system that aims and communism to specifically alleviate artificial scarcity. That's just the main point I wanted to bring out of that. Yeah, I mean, an easy way to think of it is the difference between use value and exchange value, right? So capitalism produces based on exchange value. In other words, what can I sell this for on the market, right? They're not producing things that are needed for survival. They're producing things that can be sold on a market for the most um, value. And, um, you know, a, a socialist system ultimately switches from exchange value to use value, right? Under a socialist system, we're not going to produce based on how much something can be sold for. We're going to produce based on use value. So if people don't have houses, we're now producing houses on because people need houses, right? If people don't have food, we're now going to produce more food and distribute it on a use base, on a need base, not on a what whoever can you know sell it for the most money gets it basis and if i may interject there ryan what would that have on society overall if the individual is met with their needs what does that do to them uh, you know einstein touches upon society influencing how people think what they want in life how they talk the language <clears throat> what would happen to the people if they were met with you know what what they needed Anthropology tells us, well, this fear of scarcity is gone, so human beings are going to be more likely to share and less afraid to, to lose out. Yeah, ultimately, they'll just be happy. Yeah, again, like we said about, you know, the base and superstructure, the idea that all of your ideas ultimately come from the economic base in your society. Well, if everyone has sufficient basis, uh, you know, needs, and no one's left wanting, then what happens is people are ultimately nicer to each other because there isn't a gigantic rat race in society to make sure that you're able to get yours by, you know, stealing from the next dude, which ultimately is what capitalism is, right? It's based on the whole idea of, you know, grab for yourself everything and push everyone else away, right? And that, that literally just shows the importance of our material reality shaping how we think. It's just, it's so Marxist, this, this piece. He, Einstein must have read explicitly on Marx and economics and Marxian economics. He must have. Probably. Or, or you know what? He, even if he never, it's just like you're going to come to these conclusions because it's the reality in which we live. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, there are like two main philosophical ideas that run through these couple um, chat uh, paragraphs, right? The first is the whole nature versus nurture thing. And um, the second is that he fundamentally understands dialectics when he, you know, talks about everything in in um, the cultural constitution ultimately changing. And again, like, yeah, he says here, it's subject to change, which determines to a very large extent the relationship between the individual and a society, right? And as we showed in our example just a minute ago, if everyone got enough, fundamentally your opinions on everything, including, 
the people around you, society, you know, the economic system you live under fundamentally change. Everything is subject to change, right? This is dialectics, right? Nothing is stationary. Everything is constantly changing from the cells in your body to the, to the you know, galaxies in the universe, right? Yep. The only constant is change. This idea of like a stagnant anything is just wrong, right? Like even the atoms in the table I'm sitting at are, you know, vibrating at a, you know, subatomic level or whatever. Well, an, an atomic level, the atoms. Everything, even the wall you're looking at is flying through space at God knows fucking speeds through the Milky Way galaxy. It's like, and this is why he puts these words such as society in brackets, because all we are is just going around and giving phenomena different names, but people forget that these names in which we apply to different phenomena, they're just names. It does like so the meaning of the words that we give them, they have a meaning, but it's not ultimately the reality in which we live. Because again, we're limited by so much. We can only see certain light waves. We can't see any any other like gamma rays, like X rays. We can't see none of that. But it's all there, all around us, all the time. So you know. So Einstein elaborates on this further. He says, if we ask ourselves how the structure of society and the cultural attitude of man should be changed in order to make human life as satisfying as possible, we should constantly be conscious of the fact that there are certain conditions that which we are unable to modify. As mentioned before, the biological nature of man is, for all practical purposes, not subject to change. Furthermore, technological and democratic developments of the last few centuries have created conditions which are here to stay. In relativity, densely settled populations with the goods which are highly indispensable to their continued existence, an extreme division of labour and highly centralised productive apparatus are absolutely necessary. The time which looking back seems so idyllic has gone forever when individuals or relatively small groups could be completely self-sufficient. It is only a slight exaggeration to say that mankind constitutes, even now, a planetary community of production and consumption, you know, despite us living under globalisation. <laughs> I have now reached a point where I might indicate briefly what to me may constitute the essence of crisis of our time. It concerns the relationship of the individual to society. The individual has become more conscious than ever of his dependence upon society. I mean, we just look at how people don't have jobs, they feel like they're fucking worthless. Moreover, this position in society is such that the egotistical drives of his makeup are constantly being accentuated, while his social drives, which are more nature weaker, progressively deteriorate. All human beings, whatever their position in society, are suffering from this process of deterioration. Unknowingly prisoners of their own egotism, they feel insecure, lonely and deprived of the naive, simple and unsophisticated enjoyment of life. Man can find meaning in life, short and perilous as it is, only through devoting himself to society. Yeah, so first of all, let me just start by disagreeing with Einstein. So he said it once and I was going to let it slide, but he then said it twice, so now I can't. So he keeps talking about, as mentioned before, the biological nature of man is for all practical purposes not subject to change. So as we've said before, everything ultimately is subject to change, right? There is nothing in the universe that's constant. Everything is constantly subjected to change. So what he talks about, you know, being an unmodifiable, you know, not subject to change is fundamentally wrong. 
So when it comes to human beings, we understand that evolution is still occurring today. It's not something you can see during the lifetime of an individual on a, you know, in other people, right? Evolution is a process that takes millions of years, but man as a species is fundamentally still changing. You know, this idea that we are an exception that is not changing and, and, you know, cultural and societal things are changing, but man as a being is not changing is, is totally wrong. Everything is changing. Everything, including people is fundamentally changing. So yeah, let's just start with that because there is nothing that is not changing. Yeah, I picked up on that. It's probably going to be more appropriate to say that within our lifetimes, we're not going to see any extreme biological evolution within, within our physiology. But, you know, he's a physicist, not, not a biologist. But that final sentence there, man can find meaning in life, short and perilous as it is, only through devoting himself to society. People feel like shit if they're not in work, but being told that... Everything about who we are is how much we can contribute towards capitalism, how much labor <laughs> can be extrapolated from us. Have we got a mortgage, for example? You know, do, are we buying our own houses? These are things that make a good citizen. The economic anarchy of capitalist society as it exists today is, in my opinion, the real source of the evil. We see before us a huge community of producers, the members of which are unceasingly striving to deprive each other of the fruits of their collective labour. Not by force, but on the whole, in faithful compliance with legally established rules. In this respect, it is important to realise that the means of production, that is to say, the entire productive capacity that is needed for producing consumer goods as well as individual capital goods, may legally be, and for the most part are, the private property of individuals. For the sake of simplicity, in the discussion that follows, I shall call workers all those who do not share in the ownership of the means of production, although this does not quite correspond to the customary use of the term. The owner of the means of production is in a position to purchase the labour power of workers. By using the means of production, the worker produces new goods which become the property of the capitalist. The essential point about this process is the relation between what the workers produces and what he is paid, both measured in the terms of real value. Insofar as the labour contract is free, what the worker receives is determined not by the real value of the goods he produces, but by his minimum needs by the capitalist's requirement for labour power in relation to the number of workers competing for jobs. It is important to understand that even in theory, the payment of the worker is not determined by the value of his product. Yeah, so he's he's correct here. So there's this sort of idea in, you know, capitalist society, you'll probably hear people saying, you know, I want to get paid what I'm worth. That will never happen in a capitalist society, ever. Definitionally, it cannot happen. Because if you were to ever be paid what you were actually worth, then there would be no point hiring you, right? The point in a capitalist society is that they extract the, your surplus value from you, and that's where profit comes from. So no matter how much value you produce for a company, you will get paid less than that definitionally. Otherwise, the capitalist isn't making any money off of you, right? So that's what he's talking about here. You know, capitalists, which is defined as, you know, ownership of the means of production and having the ability to hire labor power, that's where his surplus value comes from. That's where the profit comes from. It's the difference between what you can sell that value for on the market and what you can get away with paying that worker for producing the product. Yep. So to me, it seems like he talked about the overall future of the species being on a path towards barbarism 
and then he talked about how this affects the individual, how the individual affects society, and now he's gone into the core issue of this problem, which is the worker's relation towards production. So, that, you know, that's an extremely important paragraph there that Comrade Einstein has, has spoken about. Really just serves to show that this is the world's smartest man we're talking about. This is somebody who all the liberals all around the world aspire to have even a slither of the intelligence that Einstein had. And this is what Einstein's intelligence is getting them. This is the common sense of the people, the common sense of truth. Whilst it's important to voice our concerns over capitalism, it comes down to capital, and that's what he really hits home with there. Private capital tends to become concentrated in a few hands. So he's probably going on to Monopoly now. Partly because of competition among the capitalists, and partly because technological development and the increasing division of labour encourage the formation of larger units of production at the expense of smaller ones. The results of these developments is an oligarchy of private capital, the enormous power of which cannot be effectively checked even by a democratically organised political societies. I mean, let's just be real here. There's corporations out there that have got a lot more wealth than many nations. This is true since the members of legislation bodies are selected by political parties largely financed or otherwise influenced by private capitalists who, for all practical purposes, separate the electorate from the legislature. The consequence is that the representatives of the people do not in fact sufficiently protect the interests of the underprivileged sections of the population. Moreover, under existing conditions, private capitalists inevitably control, direct or indirect the main sources of information. There'll be press, radio, education. We're going on bourgeois, <laughs> free speech here. So it is thus extremely difficult and indeed, in most cases, impossible for the individual citizen to come to objective conclusions and to make intelligent use of his political rights. Okay, so now let's just look at it. Why would it become impossible but it's just a citizen to come to their objective conclusions and make intelligent use of his political rights. Well, that's because these corporations are lobbyists. They basically lobby towards who's going to be the next US president. They lobby legislation. Legislation and law, as we know, is there to protect capitalist interests. It's there to protect the barons of industry. To come to objective conclusions about their role in, in their political society, it's impossible. Because you've got bourgeois media feeding shit down your throat. You've got the politicians acting like the for the people when they're getting financed by, by lobbyists, by corporations, by capitalists. It's hard to, to make sense of the world from an, an objective point. Yeah, I mean, ultimately what he's saying is within a bourgeois society, everything is controlled and operated by the bourgeois, right? So he talks about the press, which is they control everything you read, the radio, they control everything you hear, and education, they control everything you learn. So in order for, you know, individual citizens to actually come to objective conclusions and make 
intelligent use of political rights. This comes down to, again, the, the sponge analogy. It's all about what you hear, see, and learn, right? But if all of those things have been given to you by the bourgeois, then ultimately they, they control those things, right? I mean, it was it Malcolm X, I think, was like those who control the, the media, control your mind or something? I mean, I know he has the quote about, um, if you're not careful, the newspaper will have you loving your oppressor and hating those who wish to free the oppressed or something. That was the quote I was going to say. Yeah, I mean, it's so true. And, and this is a point. Malcolm X, not a Marxist, wasn't a socialist. Einstein, no, not a Marxist. He's not a socialist. Yet we turn to these people because these people know the truth. It doesn't matter, as he said right at the beginning of the text. Is it advisable for one who is not an expert on economic and social issues to express their views on the subject of socialism or society in general? And that's because we are creating history. We are the ones living history. Nobody knows more about the society we live in than us. It doesn't matter what the telly tells you. It doesn't tell you what your politicians are telling you. We know what's right. We know what's wrong. This is what I think he was getting at. And this is why it's important that we're looking at Einstein now, the world's smartest man, because these are just, there's no denying this is the world we're in. So all these liberals, all these talking faces like Ben Shapiro and that, they're just, they're not living in the real world. But you know, that's what happens when your body gets zombified, so that your brain becomes an extension of a capitalist brain, of a ruling class member's brain. You may as well not have a brain. You may as well literally just be a puppet for them. It's about fighting for your own humanity, for your own freedom and your own liberty so that the rest of humanity, society in general, can advance together. Back to the text. The situation prevailing in an economy based on the private ownership of capital is thus characterized by two main principles first the means of production we can call that capital are privately owned and the owners dispose of them as they see fit second the labor contract is free now of course there's no such thing as a pure capitalist society in this sense in particular it should be noted that the workers through long and bitter political struggles have succeeded in securing a somewhat improved form of their free labour contract for certain categories of workers but taken as a whole the present day economy does not differ much from pure capitalism yeah so like ultimately pure capitalism doesn't exist right so this is what's called in logic this is called a no true scotsman fallacy right so it comes from you know the scotsman who puts sugar on his porridge you know another scotsman says well no Scotsman puts sugar on his porridge. And he says, well, I'm a Scot and I put sugar on my porridge. And then the other guy says, ah, but no true Scotsman puts sugar on his porridge. Right. So it's just basically, it's the, it's the appeal to purity ultimately. And, um, it's completely fallacious. There's no such thing as pure capitalism or, you know, th these things don't ultimately exist. And you'll hear right wingers use this fallacious argument all the time when they talk about like, well, this isn't real capitalism. Crony capitalism. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They'll say, oh, no, this isn't real capitalism. Well, no, this is what capitalism is, right? You have private ownership over the means of production. Look around, right? This is what you've got. And it just shows you that even they know that what they've got is undefensible and that capitalism doesn't work. Because the second you show them what capitalism is and what it's produced, 
they don't want it. They don't want to claim it. They want to say, oh, no, 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 this isn't capitalism. Right. So even they themselves understand that what they advocate for is untenable in the real world and that no one actually wants it beyond the capitalists that own the means of production. Yes, absolutely. I'm going to actually link an article which people should 1 million percent go and read. And this ties in with what we're saying. You know, these crony capitalists, you know, those liberals out there saying crony capitalism is not real capitalism. Yeah, it's right, okay. It's not real capitalism as the liberals would, would love, as the people would love to have the opportunity in order to make a business, to do all of this shit that liberals want to do. But it's true. It's just not crony capitalism. It's just not like corruption behind the scenes of these politicians and these bankers. No, that's it's literally how the system works. It's criminal. Yeah, it, it, that just is... That just is what capitalism is, right? And you know this because any capitalist society works the same way, yeah. right? So whenever you ask these people what their ideal capitalist society looks like, it doesn't exist, right? Because every capitalist society ever is what they want to say is cronyism. But cronyism isn't a real thing, right? Cronyism isn't a distinction from capitalism with relation to the means of production. They're just describing the corruption that's inherent within capitalism, and they want to call that a different economic system. But it's not a different economic system. There is no demarcation between cronyism and capitalism which differentiates itself with the relation to the means of production. It's the exact same thing. They just don't want to own the political system that they've been advocating for this entire time. For this article that I'm going to link, written in Fight Racism, Fight Imperialism newspaper, is called The Death Knell of capitalism and this is a review of a book called the death knell of capitalism or something but this book was written by two liberals these liberals traveled all over the united states to go into like economics and, and speak to these you know liberals who knew all about capitalism this book was written by these liberals because they're capitalists but they know we don't live under capitalism but they're arguing for capitalism so what they're saying differentiates our economic model that from an actual capitalist model is that they call the capitalists we live in monopoly capitalism. And why is that different from ordinary capitalism? Well, that's because if the workers truly do work hard for like 40 years of their life after being exploited and then they do actually eventually manage to start a business and then this business grows, it's productive for society, it's useful. For, for people. So the case that they're making is that we live under monopoly capitalism. So the workers can't just create a business, start it up, be useful for the rest of society, this this product or this service that everybody's in love with and then that's what makes them successful. What's gonna happen? And indeed what they teach in business schools, so these liberal authors are telling you, is that in every single business school they teach you to be successful, you develop a business that you could sell. So how many businesses, you know, Snapchat was one of them, Instagram, all of these basically started by ordinary people. And then what happens is they get bought by Facebook, they get bought by, you know, this other monopoly. And then these monopolies have a monopoly on the market they own, the dominant share of the market. I mean, the TJ, it's literally, you should never try and compete with these larger monopolies. If you make a search engine, don't even bother competing with Google. What they say is sell it to Google. 
So what does that do for the people? That makes the people rich, yeah, sure. But at the upper stratum of capitalist industry, all you have are these industries soaking up all of these services that, yes, the people did find valuable, these products that, yes, the people did want, but that's being taken out of the hands of somebody who might have been a worker and advanced towards middle class. That's being taken away from them towards capitalism, uh, towards these capitalists. And, and what do these monopolies do? They lobby with, with even all the extra money from what the people have produced. And you know what I'm saying? We're having 80 year old, ugly, disgusting, evil, looking like they've had about 10 different heart transplants owning everything and there's nothing you can do against it because if you were to compete against them you're gonna lose every single time you have no option but to sell it to them there's no way for anybody ever to enter the ranks of the ruling class unless the ruling class specifically handpick you for strategic means and i believe that this is what happened with jeff bezos jeff bezos his dad came over from cuba and, you know, after Castro took over. And I do strongly believe that there's some kind of conspiracy to support, you know, him and, and other Cubans alike to become capitalist business owners. And I do believe that that's what made Jeff Bezos, you know, so successful. I do believe that the capitalists who was discussing this business with him, all these investors and whatnot, heard that he was from Cuba and they're like, okay, well, this is just great political propaganda. We're going to show that people can leave Cuba and become the world's richest man. You know what I'm saying? I've got no evidence to support that, but I do think that because I can think of that, the fucking ruling class bourgeoisie monopoly bastards can definitely think of that. So, I mean, that's what I'd do if I was in their position, do you know what I'm saying, to secure my role as an evil capitalist devil. You know, there's a few things there, but the main point I'm getting at is there's no capitalism because capitalism demands competition, fair competition, and there's no fair competition. No, no, this is capitalism. That's what this is, right? The whole competition notion within capitalism is complete nonsense. That's what I'm saying. It is, yes, because we're able to look at, you know, the relation between labour and capitalism, but to liberals who are, are thinking crony capitalism, they don't believe it's actually capitalism. They're, They're wrong. It's like crony capitalism, as monopoly capitalism, but... It is, like I said earlier, it is just how capitalism operates. And that's because that's how the ruling class wanted to operate. You're not going to get around that. And and this is, this is why the article is so interesting as well, because it's also just saying, you know, just how insane is it that there's people out there fighting for capitalism in capitalist societies because they know about this exploitation of, of the people. They know that there's no fair competition or whatever they, they know it's not there so it, to me it's just so interesting and so fun and brings these points out that even liberals know that they don't live in a free democratic society it can't be there because this is ultimately always how capitalism functions that's what monopoly is lenin wrote about this hundreds of years ago right i mean it reminds me of remember super mario whenever you finished a level in super mario you would always get, 64 at least, you would always get that um, message that came up and said, like, the princess is in another castle. That's exactly what liberals always do when you point out any anything that's wrong with this. It's like, oh, no, 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 true capitalism is in another castle. It's it's somewhere else, right? And it's just straight-up idealism, right? They, they never want it to occur. That It can't occur. They will never look at a system and say, ah, this is true capitalism. First of all, because true capitalism doesn't exist, all you have is 
capitalism, and every capitalist nation is definitionally capitalist, right? But also because this version of capitalism that exists in their minds, where it's completely devoid of corruption, only exists in their mind. There's been no real-world example of that ever in the whole history of humankind ever. It doesn't exist, it never has existed, and it cannot exist definitionally. Just to underline that point is Einstein finishes up on the previous paragraph saying, but taken as a whole, the present day economy does not suffer much from pure capitalism. Yeah, because he's wrong. There is no pure capitalism does not exist. It's not a thing. No, honestly, it exists. It, it literally hints at the idea that something like a platonic world of forms exists, that you have like capitalism here on earth and then over there in the world of forms exists this thing that we can call pure cat it doesn't it's complete nonsense it doesn't exist it's definitionally idealism that's like me saying oh this table isn't actually a table i want something that's a pure table you're a moron pure tables don't exist what are you talking about a table is a table the economic system is capitalism that's what you've got right there doesn't exist anywhere in the world something called pure capitalism it isn't a thing that's why we use democracy interchangeably with bourgeois democracy, because it is. It's got nothing to do with us. And capitalism, they say, is like a free society, but we have no freedom. Um, so my turn to read. Oh, so this is actually what I was talking about earlier, about the difference between exchange value and use value, right? So Einstein goes on to say, production is carried on for profit, not for use. There is no provision that all those able and willing to work will always be in a position to find employment. An army of unemployed almost always exists. The worker is constantly in fear of losing his job, since unemployed and poorly paid workers do not provide a profitable market. The production of consumers' goods is restricted, and great hardship is the consequence. Technological progress frequently results in more unemployment rather than in easing the burden of work for all. The profit motive, in conjunction with competition among capitalists, is responsible for an instability in the accumulation and utilization of capital, which leads to increasingly severe depressions. Unlimited competition leads to a huge waste of labor, and to that crippling of the social consciousness of individuals which I mentioned before. The crippling of individuals I consider the worst evil of capitalism. Our whole educational system suffers from this evil. An exaggerated competitive attitude is inculcated into the student who is trained to worship acquisitive success as a preparation for his future career. For some reason, that word just didn't make any sense to me. It was like I was suddenly reading Chinese for one word. Like, Yeah, so ultimately, again, he talks about production being organized around exchange value instead of for use value. So when he talks about, you know, this army of unemployed, you know, capitalists have essentially language for this that's stripped of any emotion, and they call it the preserve pool of labor, which is basically within a capitalist society, there always has to be X percent of the population that's unemployed. It's about four or five percent, right? This is so that they can always hire and fire people at will. And in a post-forwardist society, it's so that they don't have to give, you know, pensions and things like that. The crippling of individuals, Einstein considering the worst evil of capitalism, our whole educational system suffering from this evil. It's interesting that like, that's one of the main points that he brought out for this. And why is it important? It's because Einstein, he himself being educated, given us so much um, understanding of the nature of the universe and, you know, with these equations, 
being able to produce better technologies that, that make our life better, more easily, you know, safer to an extent. And what we're looking at today is the complete opposite. We're looking at uneducated people intentionally, looking at people being useful for no other reason. I mean, the Italians who don't do, say, okay, well, don't listen, don't do your work, but then you're going to end up in McDonald's. But that's what they want. <laughs> You know, if capitalists wanted us to be educated, then we would have access to high-level education, regardless of our economic background, regardless of how old you were, anything like that. You know, education, as every revolutionary with any sense will tell you, is the most important thing. But it's not just important to revolutionaries, it's important to our species, because people are dumb, and it's because of capitalists. Einstein pretty much finishes up here on what to do about these grave evils of capitalism. He says, I am convinced there is only one way to eliminate these grave evils, namely through the establishment of a socialist economy accompanied by an educational system which would be orientated towards social goals. Socialism. In such an economy, the means of production are owned by society itself and are utilised in a planned fashion. A planned economy which adjusts production to the needs of the community would distribute the work to be done among all those able to work and would guarantee a livelihood to every man, woman and child. The education of the individual, in addition to promoting his own innate abilities, would attempt to develop in him a sense of responsibility for his fellow man in place of the glorification of power and success in our present society. So, okay, how to eliminate these evils? Straight off the bat, you need a socialist economy. You need an education system which would be orientated towards social goals and not qualifications in order to send you to <laughs> a monopoly and work for them. Regardless of your industry, whether you're going to be a plumber, whether you're going to be a, a technician, whether you're going to be anything, you're going to be working for a company, aren't you? It's as simple as that. You're going to be working for a capitalist. So when the change goes from what makes you a, a good worker, what teaches you how to serve your individual industry, we're looking at social goals. We're looking at how to help people. I think that what we could imagine is more diverse education because everybody learns a lot and you can have a genius in like one subject for example they spend 15 20 years of their life on one subject and they don't really know anything beyond that i i could imagine and i would hope that a socialist society and education would teach us a lot more skills rather than just just focusing on on one subject i think that's just my idea from that but yeah and then he goes on to say a planned economy well a planned economy is in direct contrast to this capitalist anarchy where you can produce a shitload of everything you know extract oil from the ground travel you know transfer 2,000 miles in an oil tanker hope the oil tanker doesn't end up flipping and spilling into the ocean killing millions of, of fish in the ocean and you know dating it for thousands of years and just to you know end up somewhere be transported all across that country it not get sold they go in the bin if get destroyed and then you've got all basically all this waste and pollution in the air for like um for this anarchy of 
creating products that nobody even wants and that's the difference between um a socialist planned economy is you, you plan for what you need you plan for what you might need and we would have been a lot better prepared for you know an outbreak of any kind of virus you know look towards china how how well they confronted the coronavirus and that's because they've got a planned economy they literally were able to be ready to produce billions of masks in no time for one example it's funny that you, you know you're saying that china did so well because you know it's a planned economy and the next paragraph einstein says nevertheless it's unnecessary to remember a planned economy is not socialism <laughs> Fast that in, in another episode, Avenized. What's the difference between like a planned economy and, and like a vanguard party? And yeah, you you can have a planned economy without a vanguard party, but that to me is the underlying proof of the masses having a democratic say in their society and being orientated towards society rather than individuals and thus socialism. And again, this this sense of education of the individual to promote, as he does say, innate abilities to develop a sense of responsibility for his fellow man in place of the glorification of power and success in present society. You're going to have an education system that people can go through from start to finish and they're not going to just come out at the end of it and then asking people, why are you so deeply opposed to the disappearance of the human race? Because that's stupid. But liberalism obviously wants to make us stupid and not orientated towards society, which takes a, a bit more of a deeper thought than any individualist would attempt. But nevertheless, it is necessary to remember that a planned economy is not yet socialism. A planned economy, although rare, as such may be accompanied by the complete enslavement of the individual. The achievement of socialism requires the solution of some extremely difficult socio-political problems. How is it possible, in view of the far-reaching centralisation of political and economic power, to prevent bureaucracy from becoming all-powerful and overweening? How can the rights of the individual be protected and there within a democratic counterweight to the power of bureaucracy? be assured mm. so he's talking about saying a planned economy could just mean i mean it sounds like he's saying it could be even be more exploitive than capitalism because if you're forcing people into work or producing certain items it could be accompanied by a complete enslavement of the individual i mean i don't even know i'm fucking i'm just gonna say i can't be asked people want to fucking moan let them moan but when we look at people jumping out of sweatshops into suicide notes in China, how is that not the complete enslavement of the indiv individual? What individual would feel so free? And that's different in China as well, because China are not, they are not producing based on need, right? The people, they're, they're producing based on exchange value in the same way, right? Those suicide nets that you're talking about are outside of Apple factories where they mm. build iPhones, right? Those are going to be sold in capitalist societies, right? China is not producing based on use value. They're producing based on exchange value. China has a deal with the capitalists to sell those phones back and forward, right? So they're still producing based on exchange value, not use value. So Einstein here was talking about you know, a planned economy that operates based on use value. Because if we need, like, I don't know, if we need scientists, 
then it's entirely possible that we don't have the number of people in society needed to fill that gap that want to do it. The world's smartest man goes on to finish up on asking, how can the rights of the individual be protected and there within a democratic counterweight to the power of bureaucracy be assured? He finishes up on one final paragraph to answer that. Clarity about the aims and problems of socialism is the greatest significance in our age of transition. Since under present circumstances, free and unhindered discussion of these problems have come under a powerful taboo. He finishes by saying, Einstein considers the foundation of this magazine, The Monthly Review, to be an important public service. Mm. So, I mean, automatically, as we're all saying, another way of saying clarity about the aims and problems of socialism being the greatest significance in our age, or any other, is simply we need to educate. We need to tell people about class consciousness. You don't even have to attack it from a class point. I don't think that Einstein's, he hasn't even really mentioned working class once he hasn't mentioned middle class he hasn't working he hasn't mentioned ruling class but what he has done is translate these ideas about the evils of capitalism and the benefits of socialism an essential step towards socialism in order to advance our species you don't know without a class analysis this whole time so it's it's definitely possible to teach people to be in favor of socialism without having a class element, I think. I mean, you're going to pick that up along the lines, but I think in order to turn somebody against capitalism and bring them towards socialism, it, it just takes, as you said at the beginning, anybody can do it. To just talk about society, economics. If you're poor, if you've got bills to pay and you, you're left with like a tenner every fucking week to, to get something in, that says a lot about society. Despite never going to economics school, you're an expert in how the policies implemented affect people. And that's undeniable. What's next is the free and unhindered discussion of these problems becoming a powerful taboo. Look at the synthetic left. Look at the CIA. Look at the assassination of our revolutionaries around the world. It's more than a taboo. It's seen as the greatest threat to the United States. Einstein considers the foundation of this ma magazine to be an important public service and indeed it is it's for the good of our species all of these party podcasts all these you know most of these left-wing media all these revolutionary media whether it's podcasts fucking decent youtube videos you know writing that people do and speaking to people on the streets they're essential they're more than important that they are essential to to our species survivability both as a society or an individual because capitalism's gonna kill us all yep so what did you make of that Ryan? was that what you expected or yeah it was good yeah it made sense we ready to finish up yep okay so i mean we hope people enjoyed that found that interesting i don't know whether anything like this on einstein's been done before I thought it was important to do because he is the world's smartest man after all. And, you know, if you find this interesting, please give it a like, please share, please tell us what you think. You can reach us on Twitter at Lumpen underscore radio. We've got Patreon. We've got Patreons at patreon.com slash Lumpen podcast. We have a brand new website, lumpen.co.uk, where you can find all of our episodes and more. Hope you found this 30 Thursday episode interesting. But yeah, until next time. Workers in Lumpen of the World, unite. Peace.
Master, teach me, or I would not live, live a liar. Master, master, teach me, or I 
Come on, faster. Come on, faster. Come on, faster. Come on, faster. 